Welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for joining us. This is Michael Easley in Context, and I'm delighted to have Brian Rosner on the podcast today. He is principal of Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, where all Americans want to vacation and visit. Brian is passionate about theological education that is both rigorous academically and profoundly practical. Now, Brian, my listeners know that I'm reading a script, but I'm going to read it. We're going to come back to these words. I love these words. He is also enthusiastic about promoting the gospel in the public square. He's a fellow at the Center for Public Christianity. He has an earned PhD from Cambridge, the real Cambridge University, and he has previously taught at Aberdeen University and Moore College. He is both an author and an editor of a dozen books and counting, including Paul and the Law. And in the Pillar Commentary series, he wrote the commentary on 1 Corinthians, a book called Beyond Greed. We probably should have you back to talk about that one, Brian. The New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, Known by God, and the newest book that we're excited to talk with Brian today about how to find yourself, why looking inward is not the answer. Brian's married, has four children, and uh, I want to jump right to the beginning of this to say, Brian, you're you're a kind of interesting guy because you're an academic, but you chose to put what I would say the cookies on the lower shelf when you wrote this book. <laughs> Tell me about that process of, of why you said, is it the people aren't reading? Were you provoked by your friends to say you need to put this out to a popular audience? Uh, it's a good question. Thanks, Michael. I think of myself as a Christian who happens to be a scholar rather than the other way around. And for that reason, when I'm studying and when I get the opportunity for a sabbatical, for study leave, I'm looking to learn how the grace of God teaches us to live. So I think that's that's been the passion for my research and writing throughout. Uh, in technical terms, it's called Christian ethics or, or New Testament ethics. So I'm wondering how can I live uh, faithfully in our day? The other side to that uh, particular book is is that I find the topic of personal identity in our day quite confusing and confronting. Yes. And so I, I wrote the book in a sense for myself to try and make sense of our world, <laughs> to see how best to uh, engage with it. Uh, and then I guess there's a third side of that coin, if that's possible. And, and that is that I, I had, a, a just to be frank, an identity crisis of sorts myself back in the mid to late 90s. And being a Christian, I, I went back to the Bible to try and uh, work out how best to uh, navigate those uh, difficult circumstances. And you talk about that in your book, which I appreciate. I won't spoil for our listeners. And uh, we don't shill books on In Context, but I'm going to encourage our listeners. This is one I want you to go buy, and we'll talk about that for a number of reasons. But, you know, Brian, there's some, some things I want to chat with you about. Let me give you a little preface in context. When I went to college, Strong's Inventory Analysis, the Performax DISC, the DISC, became popular. Grad school, we had to take the MMPI, the FIRO B, there was another inventory analysis, uh, Myers-Briggs. Of late, the Enneagram has sort of swept the Western church. I don't know about Australia, but it swept the Western church over here big time. And I'm not a complete throw that stuff out person. I think there's value. But Brian, it's been my observation. People are going after those analyses and looking for their identity there far more than this book we call the Bible. 
Oh, I think that's true. There, there is an unprecedented focus on the self, if you want to put it that way. Uh, so just to give you some examples, there's a gym near where I live where it says, be fit, be well, be you. Uh, there's an apartment complex around the corner that uh, promises an unlimited you. Uh, there's uh, uh, That's kind of terrifying. Oh, wait, wait, wait. That's terrifying. <laughs> unlimited me. The, what, one's way too much. <laughs> it's kind of scary, isn't it? And, and uh, just to bring it up to date, um, Taylor Swift, who, who got an honorary doctorate recently from New York University, uh, said this. Uh, I have some good news. Uh, well, first of all, she said that we're so many things all the time. I know it can be overwhelming figure out, figuring out who to be. I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. Yeah. yeah. So th- th- there's no doubt there is a really intense focus on the self. And, and people think the key to an authentic and happy life, if you want to put it that way, is to find out who you are and to behave accordingly, to live an authentic life. There's something to be said for that, but I think there are also real dangers. You know, we, we talk about measuring self, and you use a phrase in your book a lot, the self-made self, and, and not, not to go too far down this hole, but give our, our listeners a little insight. Where do we see the shift culturally where the measure of who we are became internal as opposed to some of the indices you talk about, for example, the five ways you look at you know, developing your identity and so forth. Where do you think that shift occurred? I think um, it's just the last 20 or 30 years. And I think listeners should realize that identity formation or how you find yourself is really a subconscious cultural thing. So, so many things about us are below the surface, if you like, things like eye contact, how close we stand to other people, our attitudes to authority, problem-solving, child-rearing, all those kinds of things we do without question, without thinking about it. So people today just take for granted that the way to find yourself is to look inward, to be yourself, to uh, be true to yourself, all those kinds of things. But the reality is that's really a Western view that's grown up in the last 20 or 30 years. Carl Truman, who's a friend of mine, wrote a a really important book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He's written a shorter version now called Strange New World, and he traces the roots of the movement. Uh, So I'll leave that to him. What what I've tried to do in my book is to look at the fruit, if you want to continue the agricultural metaphor, and uh, look for a different place to plant yourself, if you like. So the movement's called expressive individualism, and it's basically this idea that uh, your personal identity is a do-it-yourself project. You should reject all forms of external authority. Everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. And who you are is who you are on the inside, and acting in accordance with that identity constitutes uh, living authentically, being true to yourself. In the first part of your book, you uh, summarize some of these tenets. The best way to find yourself is to look inward, The highest goal in life is happiness. All moral judgments are merely expressions of feeling or personal preference. Forms of external authority are to be rejected. We could talk about that a long time. The the world will improve dramatically as the scope of individual freedom grows. Candidly, I almost coughed up a hairball when I read that line. I'm sorry. (laughs) Everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. Certain aspects of a person's identity, such as their gender, ethnicity, or sexuality, are of paramount importance. Is that where we are? 
Oh, it feels like it. And to oppose any of those things would be a modern-day heresy, if you want to put it that way. And you You'll can be get cancelled. Uh, you can get in big trouble. That's right. Now, having I, I don't want to sound like we're just sneering at the new movement. So sure. maybe I should just, first of all, say I think there are some benefits and some legitimate concerns that the movement's addressing. So the three main ones I would point out would be that there's nothing wrong with personal knowledge, exploration, self-reflection. Right. And Paul says in Romans 12, think of yourself with sober judgment. So it's really interesting. The Bible does deal with self-knowledge. Pastoral theology and uh, psychologists talk about self-awareness, um, emotional intelligence. The second one is that there is a desire to see some marginalized groups in society given appropriate dignity, different ethnicities, um, yes. uh, gender sometimes, those, those kind of things. I think that's legitimate. And the third one is the idea of being true to yourself, authenticity is clearly a good thing. But I think the real problem with the movement is this naive assumption that to find yourself, you look inward and exclusively so. So I'm jumping way ahead in your book. You do an interesting tact on the garden exchange. The man and the woman are made in God's image and the temptation account questions that the serpent asks. He says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you have an interesting take on that. Uh, you can just share that briefly with our folks, and I'm going to uh, counter with you a little bit on some of that because I thought that was yeah, very interesting, but um, a point I want to add and see what you think. Yes. Yeah, so, so basically, um, first off to say is that it's remarkable that uh, when you go back to the Bible to see does it really address identity issues because they're a big issue in our day, it's extraordinary that it does, uncanny almost. And I think I, I personally find so much in the Bible directly relevant to what we're looking at in our day, yeah. really constructive, helpful stuff. And you, you can start, as you say, with the temptation narrative in, in Genesis. And there, I think it's legitimate to read that as a question of Adam and Eve's identity. So being made in the image of God is a number of things. One thing it is, it's this notion of we're part of God's family we're children of God. So in Luke 3, at the end of the genealogy, it says, Adam, the son of God. And in Acts, Paul will say that uh, we are his offspring. So there's a sense in which all of humanity are made in God's image as his children. And Adam and Eve have the choice to be faithful children of God, to listen to God's voice, or to turn away. And what they do in the temptation narrative, the fall is really about, it's about lots of things, but not least, it's about them asserting their own autonomy over God. They're saying that God's word can't be trusted. They don't want God as their father. They want to go their own way, etc. Now, when you put that beside the temptation narrative of the Lord Jesus, it's extraordinary, the connections between the two and the way in which Jesus returns, it seems, to a similar setting, but does obey God and sees his word as life-giving and affirms that he is a faithful son of God. And then throughout the Gospels, we hear that Jesus is uh, God's well-pleasing son. So I think the sonship of Jesus really revisits the failed sonship and daughtership of Adam yeah. and Eve. And talk about identity. I mean, goodness, you know, Adam and Eve, their identity is the image of God. And of course, Jesus Christ is the God-man, which we you know we could spend hours discussing. Uh, when when you talk about being like God, I'm going to find it here real quick. 
They rejected all external authorities to themselves. They believe their existence will improve dramatically if they assert their freedom, and they make moral judgments to personal preference. The serpent undermines God's word to Adam and Eve concerning the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then jump ahead, you will not die. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. And I'm I'm stepping back on this, of course, you know, were you and I, Adam, we would have done the same thing. There's, you know, there's no acrimony here, but they were already like God. (laughs) 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 They were made in his image. They had a perfect relationship. And yet it was that temptation. There's more or there's power or something. But to me, the, to me, the rope-a-dope was knowing good and evil. Yes. And knowing evil was, that was the Pandora's box, forgive the uh, bad illustration, but that was the problem is you're going to know evil because you've now reached out, you've defied God at his word, you've said, I can be God. I often say, God made man in his image, and man has been making God in his image ever since. You know, that we've, pride is just, I mean, does this really come down to pride? I mean, can we just reduction theology for a moment it's about me (laughs) well i think it comes down to the assertion of our personal autonomy and i think uh, one angle on sin that's arisen in our day when people have looked at identity as i have is this idea that we are self-made self we belong to ourselves and uh, everyone does what's right in their own eyes just to return to that uh, phrase judges judges. that's a terrifying and and the problem of course michael is it's, it's not working, isn't it? it that, that's really the issue. And everyone realizes that, that there's more anxiety and depression in society. There's a rise in narcissism. Uh, there seems to be very little compassion or forgiveness. And they measure happiness every year. And, and happiness is not increasing. So this pursuit of uh, personal happiness as the ultimate goal in life just isn't working. I, I, I would compare it to thinking I need to get a good night's sleep. And trying really hard to get a good night's sleep is not going to work, is it? Because a good night's sleep is a byproduct of something else, of getting exercise, eating well, uh, getting some daylight, etc. And I think it's like that with happiness. It's, it's ironic. The more you prioritize happiness, it seems that it escapes. Well, and yeah, we could talk about sleep. My wife has, she says she has the gift of sleep. You know, God gives to his beloved in their sleep. I say, I miss that gift. But uh, it's a guilty conscience or a bad memory. I don't know which it is that keeps me awake. You also or an have active this mind, inter- Michael. Let, let, let's hope it's an active mind. That would be good. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Neuroses. You talk about your story, and I, I know you, you spend some time in the West over here in the United States and so forth. The word story and narrative, Brian, that Brian, they have become these little small g gods. It's all about your story. And it's almost like, here's the microphone. Tell us your story. There's some good in that because we want to know our history and how we got here. And certainly in, in the Christian worldview, we want to know how, how did you meet Christ? What was that like? But what are some of the dangers in this emphasis on your personal story? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, we should acknowledge that personal identity is, to some extent, consists in your story. So if I meet you at a party or some event, uh, you know, I might 
notice certain things about you and then I'd ask obvious things about your occupation, marital status and so on. But really to get to know you, I need to know where have you come from, what your family history, what your aspirations in life are. And there is a sense in which we find ourselves by looking back and forward. However, in our day of expressive individualism, you're right, it, it's, we've taken that truth and we've made the mistake and we've taken the bad step of thinking that my story is an individual story and that if I follow my dreams, my story will be one of great fulfillment and success. The truth is that all of our stories are shared stories and our stories are really made up of defining moments, goals, expectations in life, sometimes as part of our nations, our families, our social classes, our ethnicities. And in our case, the fundamental story, the bedrock story of which we're a part, which we inhabit, is the story of God's people. So I think story is actually a good category. It's just that it's been hijacked by this uh, movement of expressive individualism. And you end up with this naive view that I'm living my own story in my own way and I have a unique individual story. The truth is we're less, it, uh, one illustration I use in the book, I don't know if you like it, but it's that we now think we're like soaring eagles eyeing our prey from a great height. But the reality is we're more like honking geese in, in a tight V formation because we're, we're intricately and intimately connected with other people. When I lived in Scotland, when I taught at uh, the University of Aberdeen, you'd see the geese migrating in this amazing um, uh, V formation. And the truth is, you, it, it's not hard to imagine. It's like a peloton when you're in a, a bicycle race. It's much more efficient to fly together, yes. interdependent. And, and that's what human beings are like. We're social beings. And that means we participate in shared stories. And the Christian story is such a great story. And uh, it can, um, when, when we inhabit it fully and authentically, it, it makes a world of difference to our lives and, and to the world itself. You use a lot of uh, easily transferable illustrations. I love the fitting room mirrors. And uh, I, I started laughing when I read that section because uh, I don't wear a suit and tie like I did for you know almost three decades. But I, I remember getting fitted and you stand on that riser with the three mirrors. And I've never once looked at my backside or left or right. <laughs> <laughs> and and you yeah, see so we this don't know I, ourselves do we exactly that, that's the point yeah but my yeah. wife when she gets dressed she will stand in front of the mirror she will turn to the left she'll turn to the right she'll turn around look at her backside and i've always given her great grief in a, in a teasing way about you know and she goes, i don't like the way this looks you know from this angle i go who cares but somebody <laughs> does somewhere but then my mind ran to group pictures yearbook pictures social media to some extent when when we used to get our yearbook in in high school what's the first picture you go look for you know indeed you it, look for yourself <laughs> you look for yourself and it's hard i mean and i, I find i do a, just like you a lot of webex and zoom and you might have eight or nine characters and you put the camera right in front of your own picture so you are tempted not to look at yourself during the Zoom call. Sure. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Yes. But it's illustrative of our attraction to our own image, our own story. I mean, I don't know. Help me out. I'm, I'm prattling. <laughs> no, I think that's right. And and the movement of expressive individualism says you you should know yourself and you're the only one who can know yourself and you belong to yourself. And, and those ideas seem attractive 
but they're actually not true to the human condition. They're, they're not true to human nature. We're, we're social beings. We know ourselves by being known by others, those who are close to us. And if, if you're married, you'll know this for sure. You find out more about yourself in your marriage than you ever yes. knew. And not all of it's good. Yes. Um, but we're also storytelling beings, as we've just been discussing. So we participate in stories, shared stories, and we can talk about what they might be. But the other dimension I think that people neglect is we're also adoring beings. So we, we look up as well as around and backward and forward to find ourselves. And, and a lot of people who are not believers would think, well, well, I don't really look up. But I, I, I think there is this irrepressible urge in all humans to look beyond themselves to something bigger than themselves. I, I can give you an illustration, if you like, of that. So of just course. Briefly. Yeah. yeah, so in the year 2000, we had the millennial uh, celebration. And Sydney, where I was living at the time, had an enormous celebration. And because of the time zones, we were one of the first uh, cabs off the rank. And how did we <laughs> celebrate? Well, we put on the Harbour Bridge, which is an iconic bridge. You, you may have seen it, uh, the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge, the big features architecturally in Sydney. Beautiful. The word eternity. Yes. It's, it's very interesting, isn't it? So what does a non-believer do with the word eternity? Well, the word eternity was written in a fashion that uh, was exactly as a fellow called Arthur Stace had written it. Stace was an alcoholic who became a believer and he wrote the word eternity tens of thousands of times with chalk on the sidewalks around Sydney for, for decades. It's, it's just this iconic, extraordinary story. And the, uh, the people who organised our celebration of the millennium put it on the Harbour Bridge. Now, my question is, if you don't look up, if you don't believe there's something more to life than the material, shouldn't you have written oblivion? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, no one complained. Because I think, as, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, each of us has eternity within our hearts. We, we have the, this desire to connect to something bigger than ourselves. And we have these longings within ourselves that go beyond the earth and, about, and beyond our own resources. And I think that's, one, that's the key to finding a stable and satisfying sense of self. Until we connect with the divine, we will not have a sense of self that's stable and ultimately uh, fulfilled and satisfying. We have sometimes hear the uh, illustration foxhole conversions or there's no atheists in foxholes. Or I, I had a friend years ago who was an Army intelligence uh, covert ops kind of guy, and he came to Christ through a, a long series of events. But he told me when he was a boy of four or five, he would go to his grandfather's house and they had a pond and a boat and he would sneak out at night get on the boat and go out to the middle of the pond and look at the stars mm. and he said i knew there was something bigger than me and yeah. i mean we could talk about being on the ocean or climbing a mountain or whatever and there are those experiences that certainly pull at that eternity kind of idea. there's got to be something bigger here than me there was a, a yeah. much vilified movie by the christian community that carl sagan wrote the story called Contact, and it was science fiction run amok, but there's a very interesting sequence in there between the uh, religious figure and the atheistic, naturalistic, scientific figure, and it still comes down to faith. What do you believe? And the atheistic scientist says, 
if there's not something out there, it's a great waste of space. That's <laughs> very good. And, yeah, well, it illustrates your point about, you know, this, there's something that longs in us. Now, I'm going to go back to this true-to-yourself, self-made self, identifying for a moment. We work hard at this. Now, in this culture with uh, being triggered, you know, getting in trouble on social media for saying the wrong thing, wrong time, wrong way, if a person's true to him or herself and they have their self-made self and their identity, expressive individualism, what happens when someone else is triggered by that or offended by that? I'm not talking about the ghosting and what happens to you on social media. What does that person then do? Now my self-identity has been assaulted. You know, where do I go? Well, well, I think the answer is we end up with uh, the kind of tribalism that uh, is so damaging in our society. Um, I, I think um, I, I just think it's it's unrealistic. And it's not surprising that it leads to the kind of problems we mentioned earlier, the, the kind of anxiety, depression, narcissism, um, lack of compassion, that, those kinds of things. And people point to different causes for these problems in society. So technology, addling our brains, kind of crowd behaviour, the failure of major institutions, absence of community cohesion. But I think they're more symptoms than causes. I, I I think a big part of the cause of these problems in our society today is what we're talking about. It's expressive individualism. It's looking exclusively within to find ourselves, which isn't true to human nature and ultimately leads to problems. In the uh, important text in Ephesians 5, when it is instructed about marriage, and I've officiated you know, hundreds of weddings over the years, and, and I often camp on the uh, Ephesians Five, when it talks to the man, and I say, notice the wife's instruction is very brief, and rather than making all the women upset about you know being submissive, let's talk about what the husband is, to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I'm going to just stop right there. If I love her and put her ahead of my needs, and I can apply generalistically in uh, Philippians 2 that I place others more important than myself, my identity starts to change, Brian. It's not about me. Yes, I, I think that's right. And uh, um, one of the things that I really like that Paul says, which relates to that, is this little idea that uh, you are not your own. You don't actually belong to yourself. And in a marriage, that, that's really the definition. A definition of a good marriage is a, a mutual self-belonging, a, a, a giving of yourself to the other person. So in our day, to say that you're not your own, that you don't belong to yourself, is about as countercultural as you can get. And yet... I think there are some contexts where people admit that that's a good thing. So, for example, if you're, if you're a small child, you get lost in a mall, when your mum comes to get you and she says, she belongs to me, that, no one's upset about that. That's a great thing. Yep. And in countless love songs, you've got the idea that you belong to the other person, beginning with the Song of Songs in the Bible, which has that beautiful refrain, I am my beloved's and he is mine. So I think it, it's um, in the right context, belonging to someone else is actually a beautiful thing and uh, it can actually reassure and liberate us. And, 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 and the significant thing there, of course, is that when Paul says you are not your own, he follows it up by saying you were bought with a price. So you've been loved with an everlasting love. And, and the fact that through the cross we belong to someone else, to God, 
is, is actually a liberating thing. And that's where we find our true selves. Um, I love the, a little book titled by Tim Keller is uh, The Joy of Self-Forgetfulness. <laughs> it was written some time ago, but it's yeah. exactly what we need to hear in our day. The, the way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service and love of others. And then you'll be loved in return and you're certainly loved by our God. Cindy and I, when we were married about 10 years, went to a marriage counselor and it's a big defining time in our married life because we had a really good marriage, but I was provoking her saying, I'm looking around the room, literally and metaphorically going, there's very few couples that are married 15, 20, 25, 30, 40 years that I'm really impressed with. That They weren't bad people, but I'm going, something's got to change for us to have not just a good, but a great marriage. And um, I drug her kicking and screaming to counseling. It's kind of countercultural over here because most wives want to go to counseling and their husbands run from it. And I was like, no, let's see if we can make this better. And it turned out to be a, a wonderful experience. We went for about nine or 10 months, but our counselor abandoned us and had to, he, he left and moved across country. And I, I've never quite forgiven him. <laughs> I said, you just got us uh, malleable and you abandoned us. But, but I, I tasked him, I said, give us sort of an assignment as you, you know, close your practice and move away. And uh, I'll never forget what he said, Brian. He said, love God and love others. Hmm. And I, well, that sounds kind of like the great commandments, right? <laughs> um, but just the distillation of the way he said it at that point in time, if my relationship, my vertical relationship with Christ is my beginning of my day, I'm a selfish person. It's my coffee. It's my bed. It's my shower. You know, it's my hmm. comfort zone, my chair, my desk. But if I can calibrate and say, I serve a living savior. Now, how do I love other people? For me, Brian, that's kind of a centering, you know, will I serve myself or will I serve my Savior is the ongoing battle. This generation behind you and me, let's say two, three decades, they're not thinking that way. I'm not no, saying I'm better. Right. Yeah. I'm just saying yep. it's a different it's a different cultural milieu of mindfulness. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, one of the things this generation is doing is looking at the world as we do and as we did and think, how, how can I improve the world? And what they see, many anyway, if, if you want to look at the dominant narrative or story that many people are living today, is they see discrimination and prejudice ruining the world. Yep. So they divide the world into victims, those who support the victims, sometimes called the woke, which is these days, I think, a, a pejorative term. And, and the and the victimizers, the one, the oppressors. From there, you get a worldview that has a, a kind of program. What we need to do is to rid the world of prejudice and discrimination, and so on. Now, there's a lot to be said for that. The Bible obviously addresses acts of injustice, discrimination, where where to look after the poor and the oppressed and the marginalised. That's a very clear teaching of Scripture. But I think when you live that story it ends up being more divisive than, um, than you realise because the truth is that human evil is the original diverse and inclusive industry, if you want to put it that way. So the victims have the propensity to do certain things that are harmful, such as they can be, uh, they can be lazy, they can be uh, bitter, yep. And, and, and the people who support them so loyally can be self-righteous, 
Um, and, uh, and obviously the oppressors can be uh, guilty of nepotism and self-serving, but all three groups and all human beings uh, are sinful, if you want to put it that way in the Bible's terms. All of us have a, uh, a bent towards self-interest, towards pride, towards greed, sexual exploitation, etc. So I think the story people are living is fundamental to this uh, business of expressive individualism. And the Bible beautifully gives us a different story, the one you've just described, the one where we give ourselves away in self-love because we were first loved to such an extent. And uh, uh, that beautiful story, the, the real test of the Christian life, if you want to put it that way, is how well we stay on script, how well we stick to that story, how we live that story out in our everyday lives. So a couple of things as you're speaking, uh, I'm thinking about one of the things I'm so impressed by these younger men and women, their willingness to go on, you know, they, sex trafficking, they want to stop, they want to stop injustice, they're they're huge on social justice. Um, the number of young men and women who are getting international law degrees because they think somehow they can affect change internationally with uh, other, other impoverished cultures that are being taken advantage of. And, and yet, the implementation of that is much less than the noise around it. For example, we can talk about stopping sex trafficking. We can talk about stopping slavery. But the implementation of boots on the ground to fix that is a very difficult challenging worldview. So I find it interesting that, it, that in a sense, there's this altruistic, I'm going to go do something great that's not about me, but the implementation isn't quite there. I it, think that's right. And, and we do live, it, it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that we've got plenty of uh, talk about compassion, kindness, and forgiveness, and addressing injustice, but we don't seem to have much progress. <laughs> Yeah. And, and again, I, I come back to uh, my own take on this. One part of the answer is that this obsessive attention to the self, to uh, thinking that I need to find myself and be myself and that's the answer, doesn't lead to good social outcomes. It doesn't help the person themselves because it leads to a fragile sense of self, easily destabilised. And it certainly doesn't, it, it isn't, and just beyond dispute, it's not leading to better outcomes for society. I'm bouncing around in your book a bit, but I love this five test of the good life. Consider how well the self-made self deals with, and you have five of them, suffering and disappointment, pride and envy, the existence of weak and lowly people, enemies and injustice, happiness and pleasure. And, and that section is... I mean this in a approving way. It was laughable because as I pursue a self-made self, I can't deal with these things. <laughs> I don't know what yeah, to do with suffering. Reality. Yeah, I'll just I'll use her as an illustration. AOC is a wonderful illustration of a person that blames everyone else for the problem. And I'm uh, like, yeah, well, it, 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 it's 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 hard comical. for me to comment on American politics, but. right? But but, but I am. <laughs> yeah. But it's comical. Just as an illustration, here's a person who is you know complains about everything, mixes her categories up terribly, but she blames everyone else for her problems. And I go, well, that's a thing called personal responsibility, free market economy, merit based. You know, you're you're an academic. 
You have to study to take a test. You have to make grades to go on in education. You have to write if you're going to put yourself out there as an expert or a scholar or enter the debate of academia. And yet this uh, idea of pride, envy, disappointment, anyway, I thought it was a marvelous uh, way of distilling those things. How do you measure the good life? How do you deal with suffering and disappointment? Pride and envy. Weak and lowly people, enemies and injustice, happiness and pleasure, which tees up your book in a, in a lovely way because then I go, okay, he, he's going to give me the answer here, hopefully, <laughs> as I keep reading. Yeah, yeah well, one, one side of the answer we haven't covered, actually, is this idea of being known by God because yes. that was a really key thing for me personally when I had my own crisis of identity because I, I couldn't uh, remember who I was, and in that circumstance – being known personally and intimately by God as his child was such a reassuring thing. It brought me comfort. It gives you direction for living. It kept my life on the rails, uh, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Because those inner voices don't substantiate that. I don't know if you know Kurt Thompson, uh, Dr. Thompson. He's a, a friend of mine, and he's written several books, but his being known is sort of his moniker, and he spends a lot of time, which is very counter intellectual to the Western brain saying, God knows you, you're known by God, and you need to sit in understanding what that means. Yeah, I think it's it's a wonderful truth. And it, yeah. it's all over the place in the Bible when you start looking. So God oh, knows our names. Yep. Our, our names are written in the book of life. Yeah. And just to give you a couple more examples, in the Old Testament, Abraham, David, Jeremiah, the, the nation Israel were all known by God. Not known about but known personally and intimately in in, in relationship. So English, we use the same word for know, to know about something and to know someone. So God knows about everyone, but the great blessing of the gospel is that we can be known intimately and personally by God as his child when we put our trust in Jesus. And so Jesus says at the last judgment speeches, I never knew you in in the Synoptic Gospels. A really... uh, grave and uh, difficult uh, statement, but but I think that's at the heart of uh, our faith, um, being in personal relationship with others, so it's, it's part of the body of Christ, but being known intimately and personally by God brings great comfort and reassurance. It stabilizes our identity and gives us uh, direction for living. Well, and, and the whole art form of name dropping and association about, oh, they're a friend of mine. I know them. You know, there's that connection of community that says, I know them and they know me. And therefore, I have some identity mm. because I have a friend who is in a high place or whatever. Yeah. It, it reminds me of Paul's words in Galatians 4, where he says, at one time you didn't know God, but now you do know God. Um or rather, you're known by God. He corrects himself. He says, the key to authentic Christian living in the end is not our knowing God, but the fact that he knows us intimately and personally and loves us eternally. Um, I, w- I want to go to, I don't want to tell everybody all the great parts of your book because I do want them to read the book. But I love this section um, toward the end when you talk about personal identity and being known. And you you have four indices you say very different uh, life experiences, and you do you talk about from Lisa and B that being known is reassuring and a beautiful thing. From my own experience, that being known can replenish self knowledge. I'm going to come back to that. That 
from bereaved husband John Vincent, the irreplaceable value of being known, and from an elderly Belson concentration camp survivor that the need to be known lasts a lifetime. Expand on those just a little bit, Brian. Yeah, so um, psychologists will tell you there are certain basic needs, and sometimes they put in a, like a pyramid, the, the most important needs. Uh, one of the books I read had 10 needs, um, the, the need to be loved, um, uh, the need to be of service. And the fundamental need which goes from the beginning of our lives to the end is to be known, to be recognized, to be acknowledged. And I think this goes to the heart of our self, our, our sense of self. We're social beings and being in relationship is really the key to the social self. Uh, there's a, an amazing story several years ago where, where a chap wandered off into uh, what I would call the bush, I guess you'd call the wilderness. I think it was up in, in Oregon or somewhere like that in the US. And oh, he was on his own. Story? The Chris yes, that's story right. you yes. tell? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, phenomenal. Yes. I'm sorry, keep going. That's phenomenal. Yeah, it's story. amazing. So decades on his own. And in the end, he was um, arrested by the police because he was stealing from cabins. So he's on his own for all those years. And... Uh, they asked him when, when, when he was released from custody, you know, you had that time alone, did, did it help you to give you a sense of self? He said, well, in the end, I didn't need a sense of self. I didn't need an identity. We're, we're social beings. That, that's so important. And, and the greatest experiences of earthly life are in relationship. And the Bible makes it very clear, the greatest experience of uh, life eternal is in our relationship with God, being known and and loved by Him. Uh, I, I love the fact that uh, in Malachi it says uh, there's a passage in Malachi three where the people of God are really concerned about uh, things not going well for them, and God says a book of remembrance was written before me. So God keeps a record of our lives. He knows our struggles, our difficulties. And that knowledge can help us to get through the difficult times in our lives. That, that was certainly my experience. And I think one of the difficulties when you're in trouble, when you're experiencing any sort of distress, is that you feel like you're alone, that no one really understands. The fact that God knows the troubles of our lives is such a wonderful thing. Nahum 1 verse 8 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. To quote, the section from your book on the story of Christopher Knight, I, I thought it was it, it was a gut punch when he's being interviewed. It's complicated. Solitude bestows an increasing and something valuable. I can't dismiss that idea. Solitude increases my perception. But here's the tricky thing. When I applied my increased perception to myself, I lost my identity. There was no audience, no one to perform for. There was no need to define myself. I became irrelevant. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Whoa. It's, it's Whoa. quite an eloquent man for someone to be on his yeah, own. Yeah, well, I guess he had time to think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, well, one thing I want to say too, Michael, is the yes. cross is so central Thank to you. all of this. Yes, yeah, so important. And, and we think of the cross as Jesus dying in our place for our forgiveness. That's all true and, and vitally important. But the New Testament has another angle and says that we died with Christ. He represented us. So Colossians 3 is a wonderful passage if listeners want to have a look yes. at one particular area. And the way I translate that passage is to say, you died with Christ. That's what Paul says. 
and your identity is hidden with Christ in God. There's the known by God bit. When Christ is revealed, who is your life story, you will be revealed with him in glory. So we see there the pattern of our lives is to, in a sense, imitate the pattern of the life of the Lord Jesus, dying to sin and self-interest, giving ourselves away in service to others, but looking ahead to that wonderful, glorious reunion with God. So in one sense, the Christian story is the bleakest. It, yes. it really does treat evil seriously, but it's also the brightest because you've got this wonderful vision of, uh, of uh, eternity that uh, motivates us so much in the present. Well, the simplicity is so profound because he wanted to have a relationship with his created image bearers we sinned and fell, and from, as one of my friends says, there's never been a plan B. From eternity past, it was always to, to redeem a way so that you know, his will, we could have that relationship with him that's not ill-defined by sin. I often think of Galatians 2.20 and this whole discussion of identity. I've been mm. crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's one, you know, you can spend hours thinking through what does it mean that Christ lives in me, the life I now live in the flesh, mm. I got to live, I live by faith. And the yeah. Son of God who and loves me and delivered himself up for me. Indeed, yes. And I think it's important to point out, though, we're not talking about the kind of obliteration of our particular lives, circumstances, right. likes, dislikes, histories, but having the life story of Jesus Christ as the template for our big story makes us a different person in those relationships. So I'm a different husband, I hope, a different friend, a different worker, a different father, and, and so on. Okay, last question for you. And I'm, I'm 65, and I'm, I'm proud to be 65. I'm not embarrassed by getting <laughs> older. And I, I discover many in my age category, give or take five, ten years, Brian, they're very concerned about what's next. Because most of us have our careers are, are what they are. Maybe we, we have a home or a, a lake home or whatever we paid for. We've got kids raised. Maybe we have college funds to help our children's children, et cetera. We have pretty blessed lives. We don't have, I mean, we might have wants, but we don't have needs. We're pretty, pretty ridiculously blessed materialistically. What's the purpose for an older Christian, in keeping in mind what, what you've been talking about, that's finding ourselves, how do we find ourselves at this last chapter of our lives for those of us in our 60s, 70s, 80s? That's a great question. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that our parents probably didn't have that question or their grandparents no, at least to the same extent. No, I mean, lifespans are much longer now. We have a lot more time in retirement I think what we've got to do is make sure that we don't conform our lives to the world. The world says, and this is the other big story on offer, the one of secular materialism, that the one who dies with the most toys wins. And uh, there is this tendency, it's subconscious very often, to think that life is about my own pleasure, my material possessions, and so on. And uh, I think that the Bible's teaching on idolatry can be very helpful here. So... The Bible says that um, anything that replaces God in terms of our love, our trust, our service as the ultimate thing in our lives will be idolatrous and it'll be a God that fails. So for people in retirement, what I want to say to them is avoid idolatry. You might have stopped your paid work, but you still need to be living a life in service of others. 
And don't fall into the trap of thinking material things and your own pleasure are the goal in life. Uh, Jesus put it really well. Uh, in all four Gospels, he's got a version of this saying. He said, the one who seeks their life will lose it, and the one who loses their life for my sake will find it. So people in retirement need to take seriously their obligation to be faithful disciples of Jesus and not to fall into the trap that life is about my own pleasure. Brian Rosner is the principal of Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. He has a newest book out, How to Find Yourself Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer, forward by our friend Carl Truman. And I want to encourage our listeners, buy a bunch of these. Give them to your friends. Maybe you don't have a small group right now. Buy 10 of them. Give them out and say, let's read it and get together once a week and argue about it. This is a book that you need to think through. I'm so appreciative of Brian's work. It's something I've told Hannah many times. I wish I'd have written this book before Brian because I agree so much with the tenets of you can't find your identity in Christ by inventory analysis, by the Enneagram, by strength binders, by these helpful tools, but that's not where you find your true identity in Christ. Brian, thank you for your time so, so much. God bless you, and uh, keep pressing on down under. Thanks so much, Michael. It's been a privilege and a pleasure. Thanks so much. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.